am Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mundia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 57. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... You got Josh. This is Zach. This is Don. We are bringing you the latest comic news from the past two weeks, as well as comic reviews from the past two weeks. So, we do have a little bit of news to go over, and then we have a total of six comics we will be covering this episode. Let's get right into comic news. The first thing we have is on November 29th, Newsarama had a chance to sit down with Kurt Busiek. In 2004, Busiek wrote Superman's Secret Identity. After the success of that miniseries, he has a sequel planned. So I will read for Newsarama, and Josh will read for Kurt Busiek. Kurt, is it true that you've got a sequel to Superman's Secret Identity coming out? I'd say it's in the works more than coming out. It'll come out eventually, but yeah, we're doing a follow-up to Superman's Secret Identity. It's not exactly a sequel because it doesn't follow the same characters or even take place in the same world. But it follows the same general theme? Yes, I'd call it a thematic sequel. It's a natural companion book. Superman's Secret Identity is about a young man named Clark Kent in a world where Superman is a comic book character. Batman, Creature of the Night, is about, about a young man named Bruce Wainwright in a world where Batman is a comic book character. And both of them get involved in fantasy adventure scenarios that involve the, these characters. But where Superman's Secret Identity was more about self-identity and science fiction, Batman, Creature of the Night, is a lot more about horror and dark things because he's Batman. What's the status of the Batman, Creature of the Night project? John Paul Leon is doing the artwork, and as far as I understand it, he's penciling and inking and coloring, and since it's going to be 200 pages of material, it's going to take quite a while for this to be finished. All right, my thoughts on this, it'll be it'll be interesting. Superman's Secret Identity was certainly a, a very good book. Do I expect the, us to see this book anytime in the near future? No, we might see this late 2011, probably not even until 2012. Hmm, I wonder if this will be released around the same time as there's a movie to tie into it. It's kind of how the timeline's looking, which would be pretty convenient, which I guess isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I'm interested in this concept. I never finished Superman's Secret Identity just because of time and resources, but I loved the concept of it. It kind of reminds me of Earth Prime, where like there was people in the quote-unquote real world who were reading about superheroes that shared their names. Uh, I don't know why they went with Bruce Wayne right, though, instead of Bruce Wayne, but whatever. It's an idea and like a concept that I think should be explored maybe a little more often than it seems to be. And I really did like uh, Secret Origin a lot. And Kripuzek and John Paul Leon are that's a that's a really good team. But I'm not getting really excited about this because yeah, I don't I don't expect to, for us to see this anytime in the near future. I'm not have much to say other than the fact that I am familiar with John Paul Leon's stuff, and I kind of like it. I'm not a huge fan, but it's 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 nice from what I've seen so far. So I guess this could be alright. 
Alright, so the next thing we've got is from November 30th. DC Comics, through the source, announced that Detective Comics number 871 will be getting a second printing. Uh, so Scott Snyder had a little bit of say about the success of his very first issue on Detective Comics. He said, I'd love to just send up a huge bat signal of thanks to all the readers out there. The sales news is amazing. I don't even know what to say about that. But nothing has been more thrilling or gratifying this past week than reading the reader responses. I know that for everyone working on Detective right now, the character of Batman holds a very special status. And for all of us, Jock, Francisco, David Barron, and me, doing the series is wholly about telling the, a story we're all in love with. A story that we can be proud of as something that's new and our own. But also steeped in the history of Batman and Gotham. We've just started, but this is a big story with lots of parts. And I can say honestly that all of us are getting even more excited about what's coming in the next few issues than what's been published already. Really though, we can't thank you enough, DC Nation. Promise to work as hard as possible to earn our keep in Gotham. Good on them. That was a great book. Yeah, I think it's a that was a great issue. It's nice to see the detective is kind of in everybody's pull list now. Yeah, no, it, it totally deserves it. Alright, so the next thing we've got is from December 2nd, Comic Resources continued their Bat Signal segment with an interview with Peter Calloway. As we know, Calloway is currently writing Gotham City Sirens instead of Paul Dini. And at this point, <laughs> I guess we can assume that he's actually the ongoing writer for the series. So I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Donovan will read for Peter Calloway. Well, I definitely wanted to talk about those three characters, starting with Poison Ivy. What is your take on her? Do you see her as more of a villain, especially compared to Harley and Selina? The way I approach the dynamic of the three is that she's the brawn, she is the strength, and things are black and white to Poison Ivy. She's fundamentally a villain. That's my belief. Selina is sort of the other side of that. She's fundamentally a hero. Through the things that happened to her in her life, she's been twisted into a villain. So they are the opposite sides of the scale. Then you have Harley in the middle, who is both good and bad. She straddles both really nicely. But getting back to Poison Ivy, she is such a strong woman. She doesn't listen to anyone. She knows what she wants. It is concrete. Her powers are pretty vast, especially with the stuff that Paul was doing with her early on in Gotham City Sirens. He showed her to be really, really strong. That seemed like the right direction to take to the character. You said that you see Harley as straddling the line between good and bad. This is a character that was created by Paul Dini and Bruce Timm for Batman the Animated Series, eventually making her way into comics. Comic fans find it hard not to love her, but as a writer, what do you like best about her? Is it her personality, the eccentricity, and craziness? I do like that part of her, but I do have to say that what I find so charming and endearing about Harley is that she wears her heart on her sleeve. She's so open to people and with with people and honest, and that comes through in her eccentricity. She's very strange and approaches the world from a very messed up way, but she really is sweet. I do believe that underneath it all, underneath all the abuse she suffered from the Joker, she is a very sweet person. We saw some of that in Christmas, in the Christmas issue last year. I think that's, that's really who Harley is. I think she functions as the glue that holds the three of them together. If you really think about it, there's really no good reason why these three women, women should be together. Ivy and Selena are pretty different people, but they have a common bond in Harley. I think that's what her that's where her importance lies. I think that adds to, to really cool stories. Also, she hates Batman. She sides with Poison Ivy in that way. Then you have Catwoman, and she's in love with Bruce. As I get into it in writing these issues, I find that there's so much to mine from them all, these different directions to go and focus on. You had a note about Selina that I wanted to ask about, her love and loyalty to Batman. Bruce has been gone for years, so how is she dealing with the fact that he's back? The shorter answer is... There's stuff that she's going to be doing with the upcoming issues. Mike and I sketched out an arc for the next year that has to do with him. As you said, when people think of Catwoman, if you're doing free association, you think of burglar, villainess, hero, and then you come to Bruce Wayne. That is one of the fundamental things about her. She knows who she is and Bruce loves her. With Talia, it's an interesting thing because she, she had Bruce Wayne's son, 
I think that's an interesting thing, and you'll see that build in issue 17 and come to a head in issues 18 and 19. Looking at what's coming up, you hinted a story arc for Selina, and in the solicitations we see a, sh- a story with Harley and the Joker returning. What are some other stories you have planned, and what can you say about the ones I just mentioned? This is a minefield. <laughs> I don't want to upset my editor. We have some fun stuff going with Har- Harley and the Joker, and how that is going to put a strain on the relationship between the girls. It really, really will. There is a big moment coming up, which I cannot tell you about, but it's a major plot point that we have. The Sirens is really going to be looking at things that falling apart for them. As he always is, Joker is this incredible catalyst and this incredible antagonist. So we're going to see that. We're going to test Harley's loyalties, and it's going to be a lot of fun. That's in the first half of 2011. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. All I can say is, it seems interesting that he... Really, the only thing that was interesting about that interview was the fact that he gave Paul Dini some credit for doing something worthwhile in Gotham City Sirens. I don't necessarily agree with that, but... Then again, he's the writer, I'm not. At least it sounds like he has a plan for the book. I mean, at least we can say that. Whether that's going to be good or bad is another wait-and-see thing. I mean, Sirens isn't really a book I kind of take too kindly to, but at least there's something that the writer sees into it. I guess that's all we can say about it. Well, it's interesting that they did say that he has he's laid out plans for the next year, because it makes me wonder, well, that'll bring us right around issue 25. So, cancellation. Someone's got to be thinking it. I know I'm not the only one. No, you're not. All right, so the next thing we've got is from December 7th, Fabian Saiza talked with Newsarama about Red Robin. In the interview, there was everything from talk about Cassandra came to Tim's place in Batman Incorporated. So I will read for Newsarama, and Josh will read for Fabian Saiza. Regarding Cassandra Cain, for those who may be looking at this article without having read the story, how would you describe her current status and what was the character feeling during her time with Tim? I'd say right now, all we know is that Cass is in Hong Kong and she is clearly patrolling at night and helping innocent people from getting harmed. Other than that, it's all up for interpretation, depending on who uses her next and who uses her the most. Gail Simone has mentioned the possibility of Cass appearing within the pages of Birds of Prey. Will she be returning to Red Robin? If so, can you say whether, can you say when or give any indication where it will fit into what's coming up in Red Robin? I know Gail has mentioned that, but I don't know if there are specific issue plans. If it does happen in Birds of Prey, I'm sure it'll be a great opportunity for the character. If I were a character, I'd want Gail to write me. I do know Cass will be returning to the Red Robin book to guest star in a couple of issues in spring as part of a larger storyline between issues 22 and 25, but in no way am I claiming propriety over the character. You've really rounded out Tim's cast, particularly his rogues. Was that a goal you had when you took over the book? And what can you tell us about how each of these new villains you've established fits into his cast? Yes, when I took over the Robin series for its end run, one of my main goals was to re-energize the one part of the book I'd felt had been lacking for a very long time, which was Tim's rogues gallery. I thought there were lots of available characters already who just needed some face time and some fleshing out of their backstory. So a new Lynx, a new Anarchy role for Ulysses Armstrong, and a new role for the former Anarchy. Mm-hmm. Lonnie Mankin were at the top of my list. Follow that with characters that have an interesting look, but whose backstories I plan to flesh out even more, like the Assassin's Arab, and you start percolating a nice core cast of bad guys. I broke down all of Tim's attributes as a character, his personality traits, archetypes, etc. Then I created a list of potential opposites of those trains, or similarities, to hone the roster of antagonists for Tim. For example, Tim is all about rationale, thought, and reason, so a great opposite to that would be a group of chaos mongers like the Mad Men would make great foils for him, and they do in issue 21. Right, so that's the end of that interview. He didn't really give as much as he normally would, but we can expect to see Cassandra Kane in the book again. Oh, yes. 
as Don tackles everyone to walk up to the microphone. I think I kind of got from the interview that they're that they don't know what that like. There's no plans for her, like except like she's gonna guest star for a few issues, maybe something. But the fact that he doesn't even know if she's in Birds of Prey and like, oh, yeah, basic, I, mean, I don't think there like... ever were plans for her. I think they brought her back because of the fan demand. Yeah, I mean, I don't think. I think unless the fans would have reacted the, the way they did, there still would be no Cassandra Kane in any of these books. Yeah, well, right. she's still Bruce Wayne's adopted daughter, so you can't just push her off to the side and pretend she doesn't exist because Bruce adopted her. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you have to focus on her either, though. Well, right. they're not even focusing on her. They, they, they're keeping her in context of the Bat family, but they're not really having her do anything. Like, like, like she was not in the Batcave in Batman Return and, and none of that crap, so... My whole thing is I think they're having a hard enough time juggling everything that they're juggling right now. And if you start throwing in things like Cassandra Kane, all of these uh, these, bowling pins, these bowling pins are going to come crashing onto the ground. She's not that she she's not that important of a character. I'm sorry. She really isn't. I mean, she's not in, more important than anybody else that's in these books, right? Now. Gotham City Sirens. It doesn't. It doesn't is matter her importance. Asriel. Asriel. Wait a minute. You want Cassandra Kane to have her own title? Is that what you're saying? Regardless of her having her own title or not, I mentioned those things because you said she's not as everyone that like is in the books right now is more important than her. So I merely said the people who have their own titles right now. Well, I think. Every character in Gotham City Sirens, whether they're being used the right way or not, are more important than Cassandra Kane. Yes. Donovan, go get him. Senpai? Sensei? Well, here's, here's my, here's Senpai my thing. Senpai made one appearance. He made an yeah, appearance. Yeah, he has a story arc. Here's, here's the thing, though. Like, like, you can say that, but it's a conceit because Batman Inc., for God's sake, he's going around the world bringing in new characters. Knight and Squire, all these people are more important than a woman who had, like, a 70 something ru- issue run comic book that went on for several years. A I woman think who Batman just, adopted. Why do you just, keep hitting that? Why does that? Why is that so important? Because like, he, adopted. He, he's adopted he adop- that's, but that's your Dick, only argument. Tim? She, he, she was Batman's adopted. Do- you're saying that Batman's daughter is not relevant to the Batman universe. She's adopted. So is Tim, Dick, and Jason. Okay. And they're still kind of but around. They, okay, yeah, so... Okay, but wait, hold on. That's, that, you, that's, not that's actually legit. a really good point because uh, Jason, who came back for a short amount of time because of a story that happened a couple of years back, disappeared for a long period of time, then came back because somebody wanted to do a story with him again. That's what's going to happen with Cassandra. Yeah, That's I'm, just the reality. I'm saying if somebody wants to bring her back, then do it. But they don't have to. Like, there's no there's no reason that they would have to bring her back. If, so, if there's a writer out there that decides, oh, I want to tell a Cassandra Cain story, then do it. But I don't, don't see anybody knocking at I, that yeah. door right now. And I don't. Th- and I think the other thing is, if you force it, it's going to turn out badly because you'll get another Adam Beechin miniseries, and I'm pretty sure that doesn't do any justice for the character. <laughs> well, well, I love that miniseries. I gave it high marks on the podcast. Yeah, high toilet marks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, thing, my thing is that my, my, my main thing is that you can't say, oh, there's too many characters when there are too many characters. I mean, yeah, there are too many characters, but you can't like say that to a character that has had an established history with Batman. I mean, that's like saying, oh, we can't have anything about Dick Grayson because there are too many characters. I mean, it's basically the same thing. This <laughs> Dick is Grayson, Dick Grayson and Cassandra Kane are not in. They're <laughs> yeah, different. Really yeah, but they, they both are major parts of Batman's unique okay, network that have long runs of their one's own. One's been around almost the entire history, and the other one is not. Has been has she even been in existence been around for 20 about years? years? Yeah, yeah I mean, fifteen years. Well, he's okay. Maybe not Dick Grayson, but Tim Drake. I mean, essentially, they're they're close to the same kind of thing. 
I, I don't think she's like this minor character that like like, like Doctor Midnight that you can't have in, in a Batman title at all. I think she has to be in there somewhere. I'm not saying give her a title exactly, but just don't throw her away like she never existed. That's my only thing. There's plenty of my, room for her. That that's what I was trying to counteract from Zach. Yeah, I, I agree that there's plenty of room for her, but I think the the thing is she's not a character that needs to be around all the time. Just like Jason Todd doesn't need to be around all the time. Just like half the villains who've been around for you know fifty plus years. They don't have to be around all the time either. They appear when there's a relevant story to be told, okay? To tell you the truth, and I know, Donovan, you're not going to like to hear this, but I think Cassandra would have died out a long time ago if she didn't have that Batgirl series because that Batgirl series gave her a prominent place. She wasn't really in, you know, the overarching stories that were occurring because she had her own series. She had the things going on in her own series. I don't think anybody can honestly say that Cassandra is as important as Dick Grayson. I'm not gonna, you know what? I, t- I take that back. But at the same time, I, I just get this sense, and I, and I, I don't want to pull all this on you guys, but I'm just get the sense that like Cassandra Kane has just become this like completely innocuous character when. The only reason she became that is because writers came in that didn't want to deal with her. I mean, she had her series and it was canceled. Why? Was it canceled because of bad sales? I thought it was just canceled mainly because they were they had a status quo that they wanted to re-up. And now that the fans want her back, they're sort of like putting her in here and in here. And they're sort From of what like I this... understood, she was canceled because of uh, Batwoman series that got delayed for three years. Yeah, it, it, it was. I just thought I just thought the characters got, got a raw deal. But I mean, I we can. We can and agree. I agree. I don't think I don't think the se- I don't think the series needed to be canceled. I mean, there was some good stories that came out of that. Series. Series, just as there is, you know, it had its down downfalls, but it had its it had its upsides too. I mean, but then again, every series has that. I mean, look at the first twelve issues of Red Robin, for God's sakes. <laughs> I like, but this is the Red Robin actually. But anyway, the I mean, the the point is, the Cassandra will have a place within the Batman universe. Yes, she is Bruce Wayne's adopted child. Yes, she was Batgirl at a point, and now. She's just not going to be around. Let's just be thankful for the fact that they addressed what she, where she went, even though it took over a year to you know tell everybody what happened. Despite the fact that we were told when Cassandra was when it was announced that Cassandra wasn't going to be Batgirl, we were told right away by uh, DC that uh, in Batgirl we would find out what was going to happen to Cassandra Kane. Do we ever find that out? No, we never find out what happened to Cassandra Kane in Batgirl. It took a year and a half to find out what happened. And it took a completely different writer on a completely different book. And that that's the thing that we really should be upset about. Not the fact that, uh, you know, she's she's vanished. is the fact that DC told us what was going to happen. It didn't happen. And in turn, we had to wait a year and a half to find out. Only after they got harassed at every freaking convention they've gone to in the past year and a half about people asking, where's, where's Cassandra? Where's Cassandra? And honestly, they probably got sick of hearing it. And they said, okay, so we got to do something with her. Let's give her a mention in, uh, you know, the Road Home books, and uh, then we'll have Fabian do something with her, since Fabian has actually worked with her before. And that's that's what we really should be ticked off about. All right, so that was that interview. Let's get into our next and final interview we have from December 10th. Comic Book Resources posted a new segment of their Bat Signal segment, and this time they interviewed Kevin Smith about his run on Batman Widening Gear. So... As we know, Kevin Smith tends to use a little bit more uh, adult words that we don't normally use on the podcast, uh, so we will be bleeping those words out. So just a word of warning, there will be some bleeps. Actually, there's going to be a lot of bleeps. Uh, It is a fairly long interview, but we do want to make sure we cover everything just because uh, there is a lot of prominent information that was given, including the reason why he made Batman pee himself. So I will read for comic book resources, and Zach will read for Kevin Smith. 
It really looked like a lot of ire directed at the series came from the scene that was called back to Batman Year One, where you revealed that he lost control of his bladder in the famous You Have Eaten Well scene. And editorial signs off on it. These get vetted by not just my editor, but by a bunch of editors. The entire Batman group, and then more above them who go through going, is there anything weird here? Believe me, every one of my scripts goes through that process. And thank God, because other things got knocked that never made it to the page. By the time the Batman bladder thing made it to the page, it had been vetted by a bunch of people who had been doing this for years, and not one of them was like, oh my god, we're going to shake things up with this. They were all like, yeah, this is fine, and wait until you see us bring Batman back from the caveman days. That was the big news. So when some people went ape and literally, it's just some people, like two websites who are buddies. So when those dudes start picking on me going, he made Batman wet his pants, how dare he? I was just like, even a fireman. A fireman who's a trained professional with explosives and works in the hottest flames in all kinds of heat told me, yeah, that's what happens, bladder spasms. You can't help it. When you get hit by a blast of heat, that happens. That doesn't matter to some people. You give them scientific proof that it's a literal occurrence. It's just not like I'm making Batman go pee-pee in his pants, though that may be your perspective as an 11-year-old intellect. But this is a real occurrence, and they don't want to hear that. When I saw the outrage, I was like... Where is this coming from? Because nobody I know would ever behave like that as a rational adult, but I forgot. They weren't adults. It was the next generation, or maybe two or three generations removed from where I was, and they were saying, this isn't Batman I've ever seen. Meanwhile, most cats on my Twitter feed were my age and reading comics back then going, this is the best Batman I've ever read in a while. Not because it's any good, it's just because it was the Batman they grew up on reading, and nobody writes it like that anymore. That's all it was. I found myself a little niche, and it wasn't intentional or targeted. It was just the only Batman I wanted to write. I don't want to write Grant Morrison's Batman. Grant Morrison writes Grant Morrison's Batman. If anything, I want to write Grant Morrison's old Batman because on the new stuff, he's doing a brilliant job and needs no assistance. But I loved his characterization from JLA. I borrowed that from my Batman. I borrowed from Rogers and Engelhart. I took from Alan Moore's treatment of Batman and Neil Gaiman's Batman. Those are the writers that I loved when I was first reading comics or when I got back into comics after falling out with comics in high school circa 88 or 89. I got back into comics because I remember there was an ad in Rolling Stone, a DC Comics description at timed with the Batman movie release. All it said was gritty, graphic, grown up. It was this a picture of a stern-looking Batman. It wasn't the Brian Boland Batman, but it was the image they put on a lot of t-shirts at that point. I wish I could remember which artist drew it, but somebody sent a shot across the bow saying, comics aren't for children anymore, and I got right back into them and read Dark Knight, The Cult, Camelot 3000, Mage, Grimjack, and The Killing Joke, which had come out right then. And I read it all going, this is literature. This is literature with pictures in it. This had nothing to do with the Riddle and Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara from the TV show when I was a child. This is flat out Mickey Spillane. They just happen to wear tights. So I got way deep into this. And those were the writers that influenced me. When I write my Batman, I'm trying to ape those guys. Some people are like, you're not doing a very good job, but whatever. <laughs> I like it. You're obviously going to be coming back next year for the second half of Gear. And you left it on quite a cliffhanger. The whole book was engineered for that moment. I'll tell you the exact story of how it happened. We did Cacophony, and Dan DiDio was like, do you guys want to do something else? And we went, really? Because again, the two reviews I'd read online were mean, so I didn't think anybody liked it. And Dan went, dude, the sales. And I was like, oh yeah, there's that. So we were going to do another book. I wanted to do 
Batman Swamp Thing, but I guess Karen Berger had Swamp Thing as part of the Vertigo line then, and she read the story I'd kind of written out and said, look, I like your story, but we don't cross those two so much anymore. Batman stays in the DCU, and Swamp Thing stays in Vertigo. So I'm back to the drawing board, but Walter had been drawing vines and leaves for a few weeks, and I had to be like, put it away, dude. That's why when you look at issue one and Ivy takes over Arkham, there's all that vine work because Walter had spent two weeks drawing plants. He was like, I know we're not doing Swamp Thing anymore, but you. I'm drawing some plants. <laughs> so I went back to the drawing board and asked him, what do you want to do? How we did Cacophony was that I had seen a billboard with Batman on it somewhere, and I thought I'd been a while since I'd done a comic book. I thought Walter does comic books now, and we've never done one together. Let me see if I could do a comic book with Walt. So I called up Dan DiDio, who I'd met at a convention once, and said, hey man, it's Kevin. I know Bob Shrek was my guy back when I did Green Arrow, but I've got a hankering to do a Batman book. I'll do it for next to nothing, but I want to do it with my friend as the artist. And he was like, okay. So Dan set it up, and then I called up Walter and said, hey, do you want to do a Batman book at DC? And he said, yeah, I also want to have sex with like 20 women at once. And I said, no, I think we can do it. I called Dan DiDio, and I told him we wanted to do it together, because Walt's the dude who's got me into comics. He reintroduced me, and I was kind of looking at Killing Joke, and he slapped a copy of the Dark Knight Returns straight paper back into my hands. So he says to me, are you seriously asking me if I want to do this? Because they'd let you do it if you called them up and said, I want my kid to draw it in crayons. I said, what do you want, dude? An engraved invitation? You've always wanted to draw Batman. Take this chance. Why? And sure enough, people went after Flanagan going, oh, he's just a friend of Kevin Smith's. Well, yeah, he's a friend of Kevin Smith's. How else are you supposed to get in a foot in the door. It's a very closed industry. Walter at that point wasn't top flight A talent or whatever, but if you watch Cacophony and look at the book from beginning to end, particularly in the scenes that overlap, like in issue one when Joker's reading an Ayn Rand book in his cell, and in the last issue he's reading Ayn Rand in a hospital bed, the difference between those two Jokers is miles wide. Miles wide. That's just because he had practice, practice, practice. Yeah, it's a little bit of nepotism for me to go, can I bring my guy on the book? Without my guy, the book wouldn't exist, and I knew Dan knew that. If I had called Walter and he had no interest, if he had said, nah, then I would have called Dan back and said, I'm going to get to it, just give me a few months and I'll get back to it. And then I never would have gotten back to it, but Walter's enthusiasm fed my enthusiasm. Basically, that whole project became, who do you want to draw? He'd say, I want to draw him, him, and him. And I'd say, great, I'll work those dudes into the story. And then I'd say, do you mind using Onomatopoeia? Because it had been years since I did that Green Arrow run where we introduced that character, and I'd get to call at least once a year from a DC editor going, this writer would like to use Onomatopoeia. Can we use him here? And I've always said no, because I figured I would come back and do his story in another Green Arrow run. But suddenly, I realized I could bring him into this book. It would help out and give us a place to start out from. The Return of Onomatopoeia. Suddenly, we started building the story. Walt is really a co-plotter, because I don't write anything unless it's what he wants to draw. Cacophony became kind of a test run for Widening Geyer. I was like, now, give me your complete list of everything you've ever wanted to draw. And he gave me some that was just way, way the f*** out there, like Crazy Quilt. And because he gave me so many things, I'd never be able to fit them all into the narrative or the first arc of the book, which is what Batman's going through with Silver and reaching a midlife crisis. But I knew I could weave them in and out if I used this flashback device. And that's where that, that came in. I was able to stop every once in a while and draw two pages 
and write two pages of a book from the 70s. It was all laying the groundwork. Just trust, Bruce. Just trust. Just change and drop your guard in trust. And then we see what happens when he does that. Those first six issues were all about making the reader comfortable, and there's no better way to do that than to go, remember all those great characters from the DC Universe's past. It was nice having Walt as a co-pilot. And while all these people are giving him because he just knows Kevin Smith, which is true, the only reason that book exists is because of Walter Flanagan. Maybe some will say, maybe the book shouldn't exist, but I can show you a done a great reviews from that trade, and I can show you a sales sheet that says it sold well. And at the end of the day, for DC, I guess there's something that's very important to them. <laughs> okay, so that's the end of that interview. Oh my oh, god. wow. Where do I begin with this interview? Well, one, we already knew that Kevin Smith was pretty full of himself. This just kind of cements it. I don't really have a problem with Batman peeing himself. I, I really didn't think it was that big of a deal. I think the context that he used with it was the problem, okay? The whole, yeah, it could happen because it's a muscle spasm thing, that's fine. If that's what he wants to go with and that's his reasoning behind it, that's fine. But you don't just have a character shout out to somebody and say to them, oh yeah, well, hey, the first time I fought crime, I pissed myself. You, you don't do that. And the whole second part of this, about him talking about how he got Walt Flanagan in on the book, it's one thing to have one of your buddies do, you know, work with you and do something. It's another thing to have your buddy ride your coattails and then not only hold him along on your coattails, but on top of that, have to defend him repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly. Yes, I will agree his art was better by the issue number six than it was in issue number one, or even back in Cacophony, but at the same time, it's still not really that great. I'm sorry, but Kevin Smith just needs to, like, relax, number one, and stop taking it out on everybody who's not his age, who's saying, this is the best Batman I've ever read. His Twitter friends, he's like, well, all the people who talked to me on Twitter said that they liked it. Yeah, yeah, your friends on Twitter, the people who are following you, your fans on Twitter liked it. That, that, that's a shock. That's like me saying everyone who likes my Facebook fan page is enjoying my work, you know? So I don't know what all this hate is coming from. Okay, it's not the fact that Batman peed his pants. It, well, it, it is partially that. It's the fact that he chose... Remember this super, super iconic moment? You know, I peed my pants during that. He didn't just say, oh, well, one night when I was stopping a mugger, I peed my pants. He said, no, during one of the most iconic scenes of year one, I peed my pants. And Kevin Smith, he doesn't just say it's muscle spasms. He says, huh, it's a muscle spasm. And if you don't like it, then you're 11 years old. Or you're not a real adult. <laughs> None of you are real adults. You're all 11 years old. I have to admit that uh, of all the interviews that I've read while being on this show, this was by far the most fun to read. Now, <laughs> I bet it was. <laughs> the contents of this interview, a lot of it I didn't care about. I don't know why. 75% of this he was talking about cacophony. The whole peeing the pants thing, that doesn't bother me at all. You know, if that's what he wants to do, that's what he wants to do. I'm not a big Kevin Smith fan. I never have been. And he's always having this battle with the fans and, and things like that. And one of the things that I found that was really interesting about why his excuse for bringing Walter Flanagan onto the book was that comics is such a closed industry. Um, if you're a good artist, it's really not that closed. Here's the problem. Walter Flanagan's not a good artist. I mean, the one thing you can't say, Kevin Smith, the guy does love comics, does love Batman. I mean, he is. The problem is, is that people that don't necessarily read comics, when they listen or watch something where Kevin Smith is talking about it, the Kevin Smith attitude is what everybody associates, associates people that read comics are like. 
Yep. And he's just this very like this pessimistic uh, fanboy that's gonna tell everybody to go screw themselves. And it's because he's such a celebrity. It's not necessarily his fault that that is how everybody uses his him as an, ex- an example. The big thing in this interview was that I didn't know they were gonna have me come back, but then they said the sales charts. To me, that's always been the reason why Kevin Smith has been on a book is because his name sells comics whether they're good or not he makes companies money but uh, I thought this was a really entertaining read I hope it's just as entertaining to listen to yeah one, one thing to add on to that is the fact that kind of it kind of ticks me off more that they're like Dan Dio was I obviously I could picture Dan Dio saying something like this so I'm I'm sure that Kevin Smith is not actually exaggerating this for once but uh, to, to, to tell somebody oh well yeah I want you to do something else because the sales were insane. I really want to go back and read some of these uh, reviews that give the, you know, Cacophony and uh, Whiting Gear real high marks because I would love to see who was saying that Walter Flanagan was a great artist. It was people, it was, it was people that don't, the New York Times bestsellers list or something like this where it gets released as in a trade paperback and everybody all of a sudden scoops it up because it's Kevin Smith and that's where it's com- a claim is coming. I mean, yeah, I remember... I don't know. That, 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 that just ticks me off because nobody... I didn't see anything anywhere saying that, oh, this is an amazing book. It didn't matter what website you went to. Nobody was saying anything about it except for DC promoting it and saying, oh, you get this because Kevin Smith is on it. And that was the basis of it. It had nothing to do with anything. And one other real quick thing that I need to make point to say is it even ticks me off more about his story is the fact that he would ask the artist, hey, so who do you want to draw? Because I know you're not in the DC universe. I know you can't get a job if I can't work, if you're not working with me. So uh, who do you want to draw in the DC universe? Oh, you want to draw him and her? Oh, yeah, okay, I can throw them in. And that explains why we had so many random characters thrown into the book. This is indicative of why I thought Weidinger, why I didn't like it. Because the attitude behind it was just so wrong all over the place. It was just so fanboy with like, you know, let's put this and this and this. It didn't care what, it, it didn't care what kind of story it was telling. It just geared towards Kevin Smith's sensibilities. And that's fine. Writers should write what they like, but what they like should not solely appeal to what to what they like. It should appeal to everybody. It should be universal. Saying, oh, well, B- Batman wedding himself, that could actually happen, so I don't know why you're complaining. That in no way justifies it. Just because something is realistic doesn't mean you have to put it in a story and say, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't dislike it because it's, it can happen in real life. Second of all, like this whole this whole thing with like saying how Walt Flanagan, I, I think Walt Flanagan is a terrible artist, and saying that well he he is a buddy of mine, so that's why he's you get into it. I mean, I know Kevin Smith's primary um, job is not a comic writer, but he just kind of does it on the side. But he he's done other stuff. I figure he knows a little better than this to put up a, a good, decent product. And this was just so taking. I, mean, I can understand being frustrated at bad press, but this was just so not what I pre- would prefer to see from anybody. It was just it was just so embarrassing. Personally awful. If you didn't read The Riding Guy, you would read it with this interview and vice versa. Alright, so that is all of the news we've got. We're going to get right into our comic book reviews. We're going to start off with Batgirl number 16. All 
right, Batgirl number 16. When we last left Stephanie, uh, a guy at her school got murdered, and wouldn't you know it, there's a bloody battering at this at the scene. So the cops think that Stephanie did it. So as we open this issue, uh, Stephanie is running. The cops are after her, very um, Batman Mask of the Phantasm esque. Remember that scene where he's like running in the warehouses, hiding from oh, all yes. the cops? We got SWAT guys, we got helicopters, and Stephanie manages to hide and evade them and runs into Detective Nick Cage, who just happens to be where she fell in one of the warehouses. And he's like, hey, I know you're innocent, but, you know, uh, the cops are mad because the Newton, the kid that was killed, his dad used to be a cop. Here's the bloody battering, that's evidence. And then he makes fun of her for using, for calling them batterings because it sounds ridiculous. That way they can examine it for evidence. When Stephanie goes to college the next day, um, Jordana, that, you know, mean girl in her study group, she's using the her fake grief from the murder thing to hold an anti-backer rally because if she pretends to be sad over Newton dying, she'll get an A. And she's telling everyone, hey, if you pretend to be sad about this guy dying, you know, you'll get A's on your exams. Come on, Stephanie. Don't you want to get an A? Do you like <laughs> failing? Almost actual dialogue. So <laughs> Stephanie walks away. She's not happy about all this anti-backer uh, sentiment. Proxy uh, sneaks into Gotham University and tries to access some of their security cameras to see if she can witness this murder on video and and clear Batgirl, which why the cops didn't do this, who knows? Because even the security guard who comes in and catches Proxy is like, huh, you know that there's security cameras all over this place. So if the security guard knows, then why doesn't the Gotham City Police Department? Batgirl, with the help of her team of Oracle and Proxy, tracks this uh, cult to, I call them a cult, just a bunch of guys in hoods, to this advantage abandoned warehouse where she fights them and the cops show up but hey it's okay because they know that she's cleared now because that video got released and they're missing their head guy who uh, they're calling the reaper they capture uh, the gang but the leader eludes them we go to parts unknown at the end of the issue to the villain's headquarters where they're nervous now because they told newton to join or die which was a stupid mistake because then they had to kill him. And their leader says, it's like the lady said, Batgirl tries to cross us Reapers again. She doesn't walk away. Guy in a black Tron-like suit appears saying, blink and you'll miss her, who appears to be the leader of this gang, who we'll find out more about in next issue, which is Batgirl versus Robin. All right, so Batgirl number... 16. I've got to say, I, I'm, I'm enjoying Dustin Wen on this book. It's kind of a different twist because when you look at Dustin Wen's art, most of the time you associate some uh, darker tones with the book because his art is a little bit more gritty. Um, it's not as defined as some of the other books. Well, pretty much all of the books, but uh, I, I'm really enjoying it because Batgirl is a very light book as it is. But when you throw in Dustin Wen's art, it gives it more of a neutral. So it's not too over-the-top light, and it's not uh, too dark either. So I'm really I'm really liking that. As far as this story, I don't really feel like we've really accomplished anything. I get that they're trying to introduce this new character, which we don't even know who it is, this character on the last page. The thing that... One thing I have a problem with in a lot of comics is if you're going to have a reveal on the last page and make this big deal about this person on the last page, you have to have it so that people know who it is, not some character who's like, ah, here I am, I'm the leader of this gang that's taking out, you know, I, I'm, I'm stealing stuff from warehouses and I have this super fast suit. Nobody cares. I don't know who this guy is. If it's somebody that, you know is legitimately out there that uh, I just don't know about, well then, hey, more props to them. But uh, 
I've never seen this character. I, I questioned who it could have been for a really long time after I read this, but I have no idea, so I assume it's a new character that they've created. And if that's the case, you don't use the last page of a comic as a cliffhanger to say, here's the new character that we're inventing. Overall, it's a, it's a good book. I think the last issue was a little bit better, and I think the next issue, since uh, Robin's going to be in it, probably will be better as well. So I'm going to give this two and a half out of five batterings. There was a few logic things that bothered me here. For example, uh, the cops are chasing Batgirl, and through a series of circumstances and her tripping and falling a great distance, she just happens to land where Detective Gage is. But I guess it's convenience, supply, suspension, disbelief. And then the whole thing that clears Batgirl, because she was only a fugitive for like half this issue, is Proxy going to the college and the, you know, lowly security guard saying, yeah, we got cameras all over this place. If they, so they use the cameras to clear Batgirl. Why didn't the cops just think to look at, oh, well, somebody got murdered and here's a bloody Batarang. That that bothered me. Otherwise, um, as I said last time, Dustin Wen's art for Bat, when he, when I heard he was taking over Batgirl, it had me worried because I'm used to him doing darker stuff, but uh, he, He's doing well with this book, and it's it's not League Arbits. The tone is working. I, th- I feel like they just threw Proxy into that one scene because they needed something for her to do, but uh, I like the banter between uh, Stephanie and Nick Gage, and really, really love the scene at the, the scene at the college with Jordana and her crocodile tears. That, that was kind of funny, and I like that they're playing up the college angle in this arc. So I'm going to give it three and a half out of five batterings. I thought Dustin Gwynn's artwork was actually some of the best that I've actually seen him do in a while. I thought that that this issue was also especially dark, and I really liked some of the backgrounds that he did, like some of the abandoned warehouses, and I thought he drew the the locations really well, so I really enjoyed that, as I usually do when Dustin Gwynn works on a book. I thought the dialogue was written much campier than it usually is. There were a lot of, like, silly jokes and gags that were going on in this issue that came off really kind of childish to me. There's this scene with Wendy saying, really, you do that to a girl in a wheelchair? And Oracle says, she did not just say that. I just thought there were some really, like, awkward moments. And then there's this really... I thought the scene with Detective Gage and Batgirl was extremely clunky with Oracle listening, with her going through her inner monologue that she'd like to make out with him. And it, it was just it just so random, and it was so unnecessary to me. Jordana using her grief because of the death of this Newton guy to attack Batgirl, I just thought was absolutely ridiculous. Like, what kind of person does that? <laughs> I tell you exactly what kind of person does that. I can't say what kind of person does that, though. Overall, I thought this issue was kind of like all over the place. I think the villains who are trying to be made out to be like these really big time guys, it's not working. I thought issue 15 was really good, and I thought that this was a huge letdown um, from that. So I'll give this two out of five batterings. I actually like this issue uh, better than the last one a little bit. I thought that Dustin Wynn. I, I really I agree. I, I really thought he was in his element here, and I thought that after I don't know what it was last issue it was a little hard getting used to these characters, but this one I thought he was perfect, especially with that opening, the first page like those three panels. I thought he was really really well. I thought it was all really really well done artwork. I like the fact that she wasn't a fugitive for very, very long because I don't think that would really have sustained very long without just getting annoying. Um, and I, li- I also like the fact that there's a continuation to her college life. That's more than we got the last several issues of background, I think. So overall, I'm going to give this four out of five batterings. Okay, so that is going to give Batgirl number 16 three out of five batterings. Detective Comics Annual number 12. Anybody in there? There's no evidence anyone was inside. There was somebody in there. Batman saved his butt. I seen him, man. He was just leaping on the rooftops, carrying somebody on his shoulders. I seen it. 
Like a, a dark angel snatching the guy from the fires of Hades, man. So this was an oversized issue, and it's going to not only be in this issue, but it's also going to carry into the Batman annual later this month. Um, so we start off in Paris with a bunch of people who are setting fire to the streets of Paris, and there's riots occurring. We then see a character in a mask and what appears to be a ninja suit jumping around the buildings of Paris. And it turns out he's running from somebody. And who is he running from? None other than Batman. He tries to do a couple different things to avoid being caught by Batman, all to no avail, and suddenly he realizes there's actually two Batmen there, not just one. We then cut back to a nice little scene about a week ago where Bruce Wayne is sitting with the director of the, uh, the National Police of France and he's talking about how he wants to have a Batman inside France and his organization is a peacekeeping agency. He wants it to be sanctioned by the police. They then start talking about some events that have been occurring in Paris lately. Some random people who have been killing people that they know and then killing themselves without any explanation. All of the people are political people in some way, shape, or form. Bruce says, well, obviously you can't, can't handle this. Do you want these riots to continue to happen because of everything that's going on because you can't handle this? I have agents who can handle this. And he says, uh, well, I believe uh, we, we can take care of this ourselves. Then Bruce proceeds to give him some information leading him to believe that he has a spy in amongst his office, talking about some of the information that he's learned from the past murders and how they knew about them before they happened. The police chief then gives him a, the message for one that they received recently. He deciphers it very quickly, calls Oracle over the phone and tells him, and they determine that the, they have less time than they thought because 20 minutes ago the next target went to the place where he was. he's going to be targeted. Bruce takes off, calls his agent, which turns out to be none other than Dick Grayson, speeding through the streets of Paris in the Batmobile. He gets to the catacombs where a Muslim sheik is being taken on a guided tour of the catacombs of death. As he's down there, someone bursts out of the wall of skulls and attacks him with a sword. His security gets taken out very quickly. Batman is unable to reach him in time and the man is dead. Meanwhile, the woman who killed all of his security and the man is holding a gun to her head and trying to shoot herself but there's no bullets so Batman takes her uh, we then cut to Bruce and the police chief talking to each other about how there's another there's another message that they've received and as they're talking about this uh, the police chief's car blows up and they determine that there's a lot of things going on that are beyond their control so the police chief says he has uh, he has the okay to find a French Batman but only until the riot only the but the new Batman can only work until the riots stop and then it'll be assessed again. We then cut to Dick Grayson who's standing with this woman who was trying to, who, who just committed all those murders and it turns out that she was an expert swordsman who had no issues at all and just suddenly started acting strange. Uh, Dick Grayson does a little research, finds out from the other people's friends who committed the murders that they too also had no issues and suddenly just started acting strange. So Bruce and Dick, dressed as Batman, decide to venture into the caves of Paris and come across a group of people, come across a, a group of people who are none other than people who believe that there is the entrance to hell underneath Paris. We then cut to the question who is going to a place called the Golden Port 
portal and she's trying to find some answers. She comes inside and she is met by Corrigan. Then we then cut to a couple days ago. Dick Grayson is meeting with somebody who's saying they know exactly what this new message means. And the reason why is because she wrote the message. It's her lyrics. It's her song. Her name is Lenny Urbana. After Batman calls Oracle and finds out exactly who Lenny Urbana is, turns out She's very popular. She is so popular that if she said start a riot, people would start a riot. If she tells them to not to have any violence, there won't be any violence. From there, Batman is uh, convinced that she's the next target. And because of that, they're watching her next concert site when the man with the ninja suit appears. They chase him down thinking that he is the person who's going to commit the murder. It's actually not. At the end of it, we see a bunch of people strapped with grenades to their chest and swords walking towards towards concert and that's the end of that story we then cut to a question story which i'm going to sum up very quickly question goes to see richard dragon along with somebody within cave deep inside the earth this is a continuation of the co-feature that we had happen way back when greg rucka was still on detective comics she has the mark of kane um that she received from vandal savage because she insists on taking it more so than the huntress within that co-feature richard dragon guides her down to the catacombs where she meet somebody who also bore the sign of Cain at one point. This man has supposedly lived for thousands of years because he was around back when Cain had the mark on his head. She then says, you know, if you you can take the mark if you want, but the only way you can actually take the mark is by someone has to die, or by she has to die in order for him to take it. He says very willingly that she should kill herself so that he can take it because he's not ready to die yet, and she soon realizes that she's not ashamed of herself and she's uh, very strong and sign then disappears. She still has the sign, but the sign has subsided because the whole point is that because she is not shameful of herself, her sin is not projected. This creature then, creature, man, whatever it is, decides to go after Richard Dragon. Question takes a rock, knocks him out. That's the end of that story. We then cut to the next story, which is the Nightrunner story, which we find out the origin of this Nightrunner character. Turns out he is nothing... Or he, he is none other than a Sunni Muslim living inside Paris. He lives with a single mother who's raised him all of his life, and he has one friend. On his 16th birthday, him and his friend get caught in one of the riots that are occurring in the streets of Paris, and the cops take him and his friend out and beat them to the inch of their life, despite the fact they had nothing to do with the riots. In the hospital, he says that he wants to take revenge, but his mother tells him, if you do that, you end up just like them. Uh, he then sees his friend who tells him about the words of Lenny Urbana and that he has to listen to them. He then hands his friend hands his friend then hands hands Bilal his backpack which contains pretty much his everything that he has and his friend leaves and he has a feeling that he's never going to see his friend again. Well it turns out his friend decides to go burn the fire station or his friend decides to go burn down the police station, and the police in turn shoot him down in the streets. So now Bilal is very upset with everything that is happening and is pretty ticked off about everything, so he starts listening to the music that his friend told him to listen to. In the music, it tells him to you know, stand up and fight for what they believe, but every time that he thinks about it, he realizes his mother's words about, you know, he will end up no, no better than him. So then he starts... Uh, 
taking up a little parkour and gets pretty good at it. He notices that a lot of other people in the his neighborhood are seeing him do it and they have something to talk about other than the riots that occur. Every night he sits uh, at the house and he tries to make sure that nobody's going to come and do anything to his mother and that's what happens. One day he decides he's had enough and he learns about the message Lenny Urbana could possibly be a target for this assassinations that have been occurring. And he writes a note saying that he has to uh, take charge and do something about it. So he puts a mask on, he puts his little ninja suit on, and he goes to the Lenny Urbana concert. And that will be continued into Batman Annual number 28 later this month. Detective Comics Annual number 12. There was uh, a lot of uh, stuff to go over, but uh, it was a good 50 pages for the comic. So a little bit, it was pretty much twice as large as a normal. The first part I thought was okay. It was a little interesting, the approach that David Hyde decided to go with about uh, jumping around timeways. But then I remembered, oh wait, that's that's actually what David Hyde does all the time. He, uh, he time jumps. Uh, kind of like somebody else uh, that I remember, Chris Yost. And uh, I didn't like it then. I didn't like it when David Hine really did it. Even though I liked the story that David Hine was telling, I didn't really like the time jumps, and I still don't like the time jumps. I thought the the question story was kind of thrown in there because there was the somebody was saying, "Hey, what about question? Whatever happened with that? We never got a conclusion with that because question got pulled off the Detective Comics co-feature very suddenly. Because of that, we never found out what happened. So that." I think is why that got thrown. Although it is interesting that they decided to get her into the actual main story too and have her in Paris with Batman. Is she going to be part of Batman Incorporated? We'll have to see. The Knight Rider origin story was quite interesting. I don't think I'm going to care much about this character after the next uh, issue. The uh, Batman annual, I don't really think this character is even going to appear very often, so we'll have to see what happens with that. As far as the art, I think the best art in the book was in the Knight Runner story. I really enjoyed the art. Um, I really did not expect the art to be really all that great, but it was uh, quite surprising how good it was. Trevor McCarthy was the artist on that, and he did an amazing job. I thought it was better than the art that we saw for both of the other stories. So with that, I'm going to give this book three and a half out of five batterings. I liked the variety in this book. I liked uh, how we did get some follow-up to the question story that was a co-feature in Detective Comics. I wonder if they just kind of put it here because the co-feature stuff was cut short. I'm not sure. The art wasn't too bad to look at. Uh, The story, it felt like this is something that could have been done and like if that it was a little padded maybe they could have done it as a two-part story and they just you know put in the annual and they're stretching that and even then it's a cliffhanger because they're going to continue in the next batman annual but you know it wasn't horrible so i'm going to give it uh three out of five batterings david hein usually struggles writing bruce and dick and separating the two from one another but i thought that that was done really well and you were very aware of who was speaking even when they were wearing the same costume. I thought the the question story was the best, and I thought the artwork in the throughout the issue was really good, but I thought the question story's artwork was by far the best. Uh, I just thought it was very simple. It was really appropriately colored. I just thought it was really good. And I thought that the question story was by far the best writ of the three stories. Uh, the thing I liked about the first and the third was that they were bringing in current events in regards to uh, there being a lot of like violence going on in France because a little while back that was a really big thing so I always thought that that was kind of that's interesting when when a writer chooses to bring in those events because we don't see that too much I also thought that the artwork in the Night Runner story was really good it was very gritty kind of tone and I really liked that I thought all three stories had good artwork but I didn't find any of these 
I liked the question story, but I didn't really find any of these to be really good stories. So I'm only going to give this three out of five bad ranks. I thought overall the the entire issue was decent. Um, I really liked the Night Runner story at the very end. I thought that was pretty pretty unique. The one thing I wish I didn't see was just the opening scene that ended with both Batman saying, like Batman saying, as the representatives of Batman Incorporated and, and by the authority granted to us by the elected government of France, you are under arrest. That's kind of the kind of stuff I really was hoping not to see around this Batman Inc. era, where Batman plural go around policing people in other countries. I just I can't wrap my head around that. That, that just seems stupid to me but the issue as a whole was interesting because it was in france and basically out of gotham though i don't know i'm not sure why bruce pulled dick out of gotham when he said you take care of gotham now but as it stands this was all right so i'll give this three out of five better ranks and over on the website, uh, Eric gave Detective Comics Annual number 12 three and a half out of five batterings, and Dane also gave it three and a half out of five batterings as well. So that is going to give Detective Comics Annual number 12 three and a half out of five batterings. So you're the president of Gotham First Federal. I hope you've beefed up your security. Those time locks were easy to circumnavigate, as I recall. Sir, you leave me at a loss for words. I certainly left you at a loss for funds. <laughs> Lovely dress, prison chic. Makes her look like a gathering of cell block three. <laughs> Say, isn't that Mayor Hill? Hey, Hammy! Let's move into our next book, Red Robin. We start off, Tim is in Russia, and he's meeting with uh, Russia's neighborhood superhero, Red Star. Red Star was a member of the Teen Titans for a while, but he, his personality kind of took a turn for the worse after the events of Infinite Crisis when Superboy Prime killed his superhero family. So Tim's there because he's investigating um, this guy named Victor, who might be donating some money to Tim's project. Uh, it's Project Neon Knight. But Tim wants to find out if this guy is connected to the society or not, and really he's just meeting with Red star as kind of a courtesy because it's like hey i'm in his you know country so we cut to a hotel where tim is there with tam she's kind of his partner in this and uh they do have separate bedrooms the dialogue states uh because tim's not sure where he stands with her and he's not sure if he wants to think about that yet and they go over some exposition about how things are going to go during their meeting with victor they're going to hook something up to the computer that's going to help lonnie aka the former anarchy hack into victor's computer and find out if he has any dirty dealings Worse, you know, but best case scenario, they'll be able to get a check from him. Tim sells Tam, get the check as soon as possible, just in case anything goes wrong. So they do the presentation. Tim gets his check, but something does go wrong. Luckily, they got the check first. This girl, who we wind up calling Promise, crashes through the window and starts shooting at people. But Tim immediately realizes that she's not actually trying to kill anyone because she's using rubber slugs. He looks over and sees Tam taking one of the USB things that they were using to hack into the system. And he's thinking, wow, Tam's getting good at this. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Red Star is shows up, but uh, Promise gets away, but not before using Tim Drake as a hostage for a few seconds, and Tim uses that opportunity to put a tracer on her. So Tim follows uh, the tracer and finds Promise in an abandoned warehouse taking a shower. So he fights her while she's naked, and even he has... There's that interview from a while ago where Fabian was talking about, like, the quest for Tim's virginity, and we were talking about in a podcast a a while ago, like, how all these characters are, like, building up. Tim even mentioned something about that in the dialogue. He's like, Scarab, Stephanie, Lynx, Tam, now this woman? And Cass. He did mention Cass. Yeah, wow. There we go, Donovan. That was just for you. (laughs) Sorry. Well... 
they stop fighting because he just wants to talk to her and finds out, you know, why she's after Victor and if he is up to no good. But in comes Red Star, who wants to go after this woman. And then it's a case of Tim saying, no, 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 you have to listen. You know, she might have something to stay. So is he going to defend Promise or is he going to help Red Star fight her? Tam gets in touch with him on the comm link and says, yeah, it turns out this guy's tied to Calculator. So Tim tells this to Red Star and he's like, so... Lex Luthor, you know, uh, helped rebuild Gotham. Sometimes you, you know, deal with bad guys. So Tim makes a moral decision and attacks Red Star and tells Promise to run. Tim winds up going into Red Star's little spaceship thing in the sky and he sees lots of weapons of mass destruction. Then all of a sudden, Promise gets knocked out. Tam Fox, you know, gets is unconscious. Tim is unconscious. And Red Star is kneeling over Tim's body and says, What happened? And we're going to have to wait to find out next issue. Red Robin number 18. I don't even know where to start with this. The The biggest issue that I'm having, I guess, is uh, I think they're starting to really overplay all the females now. And the fact that Tim, even in his inner monologue, is saying all the females that he's coming in contact with and how conveniently they're all stripping down for him or <laughs> they're in compromising positions for him all the time it seems a little odd. It's almost as if we're only seeing what Tim would see, which is naked women in his head. Marcus Toe's art is, again, same as last month, very good stuff. Fabian, uh, I think the story needs to move along here. I'm not sure what's going on with this Red Star guy. Honestly, I'm not even really that familiar with Red Star. I know that he was in Teen Titans at one point, but that's because that's what it said in the Red Robin book. He was, a, he was the original Starfire. I don't even know how that makes sense. <laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> okay. I'll be looking forward to what happens in the next issue because it seems like we're getting these big chunks of filler with little things that are actually bringing the story along. I don't think the story's bad. I, I do like the inclusion of the old anarchy, Lonnie. He's in the book. I, I do like that. I do like that he's working on Red Robin's side and he's kind of Red Robin's oracle now. That's kind of interesting. It's almost as if Tim is creating his own little universe and I think that's, that's exactly what Fabian wants. So with this one, I'm going to give it three out of five batterings. I like this. I got a very Batman Incorporated issue one vibe from it with, you know, Tim being in another country and him having his female companion with him. And of course, there's a scene with her coming like out of the shower, but no TNA. That's for the end of the book. She's wearing a, you know, full body bathrobe here. But that reminded me of the scenes of Bruce and Selena and like the exotic locales and their hotel rooms, you know, planning their next thing. I like the inclusion of the of Red Star, you know, because sometimes the DC universe is a lot bigger than just Gotham and the Gotham people and Tim as a member of the former member of the Titans has these connections and it fit with the story and one of the themes when Red Robin the series was first launched was that Tim was going to be skating the moral ambiguity line and this issue here with him deciding am I going to help this criminal and fight my former teammate or what am I going to do and him fighting Red Star and the consequences and the moral dilemma that entails that that was enjoyable. I like Tam Fox kind of tagging along as the sidekick and her getting the hang of things. She's a funny character. I compared her to uh, that girl from Temple of Doom a few times, the one who's like really incompetent. Kate Capshaw. Kate Capshaw, yeah. So th this was uh, a fun issue and uh, I'm enjoying this. So I'm going to say four and a half out of five batterings. <coughs> 
yeah, I too really enjoyed it, and I got that Batman Inc. vibe from it. I don't think it works as well here, but I still thought it was entertaining because this book kind of has been very inter- had that international adventures of Jim Drake thing. But it seems like it's kind of been it's becoming more prominent now. I guess it's it's being kicked up a level, and I'm enjoying that. I also liked the Red Star inclusion because I wasn't really I didn't expect Ben. Like I didn't expect to see him show up. I do think it, I did find it kind of funny that all these women were in such these uh <laughs> in such these like perfect situations for Tim to lose his V card. Because ever since now that this has become such a big thing, it's like now it's we're gonna put him in every position possible where we're gonna test to see if he's gonna ring that V card up or what. But uh I don't I don't know. I, I think it's I think it's kind of so I really, I really enjoyed this. I thought Marcus Toe was really good as usual. I thought the action sequences were really put together. And I liked the ending with, you know, Red Star says, what has happened? And then it says, next issue, we learn what has happened. And so um, a typical Red Robin issue, which is a really good issue. So I'll give this four out of five batterings. I think this may be my favorite bat book out of like the 20 or so that we tend to review in the show. It, like the art's consistently excellent. The writing is, is very, very good. There's lots of continuity without getting bogged down in it. And I'm always interested to see what happens. The Red Star thing, I was a little confused because I just have not read when Tim met Red Star before, especially with the fact that he knew his secret identity. I was wondering, okay, does this ha- did this happen during the Wellingham run, which I didn't read? But it apparently happened in Teen Titans, which does make sense because I knew he was a Teen Titan. I really liked Tamman's issue. I thought that she was... I, I'm sorry to warm to her character, and um, whether she hooks up with Tim or not, I think that's irrelevant. I think just, I just think she's becoming a fun character. The character of Promise, I thought, was a little generic. Like this, There's a thing with a lot of comic books these days where you get a woman in a skin-tight skin catsuit shooting guns and guns and cleavage ablazing and have them be this like kind of like super spy kind of thing. It's gotten a little old. In fact, it's actually, no, it's gotten very old, but I thought that the interest, the story was interesting enough to where that's only kind of a minor gripe, really my only gripe. So I'm going to give this a straight four out of five batterings. All right, and over on the website, Suave Star gave it one and a half out of five batterings. So that is going to give Red Robin four out of five batterings. Still no word from Castle Blackhorn. Our post there has never missed a check-in. Here's more bad news. Agent Frederick has been listed missing. I don't like this. Frederick was part of the original security team at Black One. Him and that fellow from Clerical. Pennyworth. Alfred Pennyworth. Our apologies for intruding. You were saying something about a castle? How did you get in here? We don't have time for protocol. Pennyworth is also missing. We have reason to think he and Frederick might be in considerable danger. What was the name of that castle? And why should we give you that information? Because I can give you Red Claw. Blairquan. Castle Blairquan on the West Scottish coast. It was the base for Project Excalibur. Blairquan is the last of our land-based missile silos. Do you think that's what Red Claw is after? Apparently so. Let's move into our next book, which is Night and Squire number three. Nine Squire number three of six, written by Paul Cornell with artwork by Jimmy Broxton. The issue opens at the COR Labs, which stands for uh, her Council for Organized Research, which is equivalent to the UK's Star Labs, where they are unveiling this DNA reclamation project, where they have taken DNA from the tomb of Britain's former king, Richard III, and they are cloning his DNA. And after this process, Richard III is reborn. As Richard is introduced to the to the future, Squire senses that there's trouble on the way, and, and Knight trusts 
her judgment. Richard asks for a moment alone, and we learn that his he plans to fool these English people of the future and rule the nation by any means necessary. So Knight and Squire soon lead the ceremony, and we cut to Richard, where this professor who is responsible for his re- rebirth is providing him with some sort of like headset simulator thing that brings him up to speed with everything that has happened since he's been dead. We cut to a, le- a week later, where Knight is having out on this date, having dinner with this music superstar who explains that she believes Richard is putting a band together. We cut to another week later, where at a press conference. Richard is denying the throne back, as he has claimed it to be his since he is no longer dead. Later that night, Richard and some of his goons enter back into the COR labs, where he is confronted by the professor. She goes to press the alarm after she learns that they are causing trouble, but Richard shoots her. Inside the lab, Richard is met by these two businessmen who are working with him named Ronnie and Donnie, and they give Richard his very own custom motorcycle. As we soon learn that Richard was has taken DNA from all the former monarchs of England, and he has created his army of clones that he is going to use to, to take back the throne. However, Knight and some other British superheroes confront the Richard's army, and after this clever plan all conjured up by Squire, uh, his fellow monarchs abandon him, but he refuses that he's going gonna to go down without a fight. And this leads to a Richard and Knight jousting sequence. Instead of them riding on horses, they are riding on their motorcycles. And Knight comes out victorious. And once again, England is rescued from evil thanks to Knight and Squire. And that is the end of the issue. Alright, Knight and Squire number three. I thought this one was a little bit better than the last issue. I thought the villain was a little bit more uh, meaningful to what was going on in comparison to the last issue with the random group of guys that some people are old, some people are new, and they've got some portal. I thought it was kind of dumb, but this issue, I was actually looking forward to this issue because from the description we got uh, when it was first solicited, on top of that, the uh, the hints that Paul Cornell has given since the issue has been solicited as well. I thought King Richard coming back was kind of an interesting thing in him bringing back all of the, I guess, evil monarchs of England to help him was kind of interesting. I thought it was really funny how one of the guys had to walk around holding his head because his head was chopped off when he died. The art was fine. I don't have any issues with the art. For the most part, the book was it was pretty good. And I uh, really liked the uh, Twunter and YouTube, as it was called, and how Squire somehow used those to really uh, defeat King Richard. So it's quite interesting. Three and a half out of five batterings. Here we have a Batman book where the English version of Batman and Robin used popular social networking sites, but copyright safe, to defeat the resurrected Richard III and his army of monarchs. Uh, I, I I can get behind ridiculous stuff, but it, it, you ha- you have to walk a, a line when you do that. And this this series has not worked for me from when they first announced it to reading these issues. It's I'm gonna have to give it two two out of five batterings. It's they're just throwing everything at the ceiling here. I, I thought that this also was much better in comparison to the second issue. And this is absolutely, this is excusable, but it's absolutely ridiculous. And it is excusable because this book is trying to be everything but serious. And that's why I th- think I like this title so much. Jimmy Broxton, I think, is a fantastic artist. I hope he gets to do some more work doing something related to Batman after this miniseries is over. He just got a very 
I think, definitive style, and it works perfectly with Cornell's writing. So I'd like to see them team up and do more work. There's a lot of Shakespearean kind of callbacks and stuff going on, and the, the dialogue is really hard to interpret at times. It's still a lot of f- fun, but I thought that that was kind of a, a detriment to the issue, is that it was difficult to kind of know what they were talking about sometimes. The back-and-forth banter with Knight and Squire reminds me very much of Batman and Robin, but the Batman and Robin characterization that we really don't get to see that much anymore. One other disappointment was that the whole social network thing with with Twitter and the YouTube was clever, but I didn't really th- it didn't really play a role in the story until the end. And I wish we've gotten a bit more of that stuff because I Cornell kind of played that up more than he ended up using it as in when he was talking about the series. Um, but I did really like Richard and Knight just going straight at each one another in these, on these motorcycles. It was like this very like exploitation vibe thing that I thought was really funny. And uh, I thought this was, it, this was confusing, but most of these, these three, all three of these issues have been, but it's just a ton of fun. So I'll give this four out of five batterings. I thought this was the weakest out of the miniseries so far, but I still enjoyed it. At the very end of the issues, Cornell goes into like cultural ref- references. There's one in the very, very beginning when there's a splash page that has the title. It, it reminds me of an episode of Doctor Who from the third season, but yeah, I, this is very much akin to like the 60s Batman show to me, just, you know, with the British flair. And it's a fun book. It's a little confusing because there's a ton of like British colloquialisms, but overall, I mean, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have much to say on, on the plot. The plot was pretty straightforward besides it being a little confusing. Um, the art's suitable for the book as it is. I'll give a straight three and a half out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Knight and Squire number three, three and a half out of five batterings. Is this some kind of joke? It's no joke, I assure you. It's the fear of victory and the agony of the scarecrow. <gasps> so now you understand step one in how I fix an athletic contest. I shall proceed to step two. No! No! Get away! <laughs> Batman 80 Page Giant features several different stories from Batman's Rose Gallery. And we start right off the top with the Joker. The Joker is in Arkham Asylum having just beating the daylights out of one of the psychiatrists. And as he addresses the reader, he wants to, he asks, would you like to know how this all began? Whether or not that's true, we go back to this this sort of like celebrity shrink named Jonathan Ryan. He decides to evaluate and analyze the Joker. So they go through the rigor roll of Rorschach inkblot tests. He asked, and the Joker only sees the bats. He asks the Joker to think back as far as he can remember. And the farthest Joker can remember is him falling to the battle of chemicals at the Ace Chemical Plant. And suddenly feeling like he gets the joke, he gets everything, he understands life and that everything is up for grabs. He keeps the Joker sedated so the Joker doesn't attack people, but we see later on that doesn't work out so well. And basically, he there's just several there's several scenes of the Joker being certain levels of therapy, like shock treatment and solitary and all of that. At the end, though, Joker tries to tell a joke which ends with the punchline Brick 237. It's a punchline because Joker pretty much beats the living daylights out of this guy with it. And as he's dragged out of the asylum, he says that he's not crazy. He just knows that he's talking to himself, his imaginary person. And he, he tries to make sure that by staring right into the reader saying, you are imaginary, right? That is the end of the first story. The second story has a protagonist in one Edward Nigma, a.k.a. the Riddler. He has been hired by someone to steal a statue. And the course of the story is basically how he would imagine doing it and how he would probably be caught. This is also still the reformed private eye Riddler. So he's trying to refrain from 
dressing up in a mask and doing and just going out and out stealing it. He also has some funny inner monologues about how Batman would go about doing that. He just at the end through a failed attempt to disguise himself as one of the security guards, he ends up just nine hours later just not being able to steal the statue. It turns out that Catwoman who was who he met when he tried to steal it back earlier that night, stole it from him, and so he asks her for a favor at the end. The next story goes into the background of the Calendar Man, aka Julian Day, and while he's being evaluated by several psychologists, we get to see it that he was abandoned as a child during the entire month of December. And it was then where he began to think that every day was significant and become obsessed with days, months, and years. Um, during some quiet time in a, a group cell, he starts to go berserk and attacks a cellmate, screaming several months like may june july and he actually ends up escaping heads toward the roof and says it's a leap year which it which is it's february 29th he jumps over but is saved by the batman and says that well i guess i'll see him in the four years batman says no you need help i'm not gonna play your game and day says you know what? i do need help you'll be there to help me won't you and batman has disappeared the next story is very straightforward it is a researcher named sarah kelly trying to, to start a documentary on the legendary crocodiles that live under the sewer as it turns out her her and her entire crew are attacked and presumably killed by killer croc and that's the end of that the next story is starts out with bruce wayne presumably being held for the murder of his parents as he is going down death row we see that he's being analyzed by jonathan crane aka the scarecrow of course this all turns out to be a hallucination uh, due to the fear gas and while it comes to the point where he's going to be given the electric chair we go back to reality where the scarecrow tries to electrocute batman but his suit is insulated and shockproof so batman ends up taking him but scarecrow comes closer and closer to find out what makes batman so driven what is the trauma that made him be who he is? The next story, entitled Two Face, is pretty much a story that Bruce Wayne holds. Bruce Wayne holds a masquerade ball, and he pretty much goes through the whole, you know, socialite Bruce Wayne talking to people in, in a different voice. Then, when 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 there is evidence of a crime, he goes and there's a total splash page of him turning into the Batman. He runs into some masked burglars, takes them down. Gordon says, "Oh, you'll be here always, won't you? You're not going anywhere." He says, "Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere." And that's the end of that. The last story is one named so someone named Humphrey Dumpler. It's his birthday, and who should show up but Joker and Two Face? Yeah, Joker and Two Face do show up, but jo- Joker kidnapped Two Face, brought him as a present. There's a lot of banter going back and forth, and Joker pretty much reveals that Harvey Dent has always been in control of his schizophrenia and his two personalities. It's never been due to the coin; it's always been Harvey Dent's persona. And Two-Face says, well, what are you going to do about that? They start getting into a fight, and they both say they're going to finish each other off one day, while Joker enlists Mr. Dumfrey into his henchman's rose gallery. Though there are special sneak peeks to the other comics at the end, that is the end of the Batman 80 Page Giant. All right, Batman 80 Page Giant. I'm just really going to say which ones were my favorite and which ones were my worst. Uh, I thought the Riddler story was very interesting. I enjoyed that one. Uh, The Everyday Counts, which had Calendar Man in it, was very interesting also. It shows that Calendar Man can have some interesting stories. The one that really standed out to me as the worst one was Two-Face Story. That one just seemed like kind of a waste of uh, paper. That's all I have to say about that. So overall, I'm going to give the entire 80-page giant three out of five batterings.
I think that they need to space some of these out more. We have a Batman annual coming up, and, you know, there's a Detective Comics annual that just got released, and there's an 80-page giant there. It's it's all very overwhelming, especially for, you know, those of us who are on podcasts. Uh, I did like some of the stories in here. Uh, I guess a lot of these were villain-focused stories, at least that's what it felt like to me. My favorite one would probably have to be the Scarecrow one, just because of, you know, the beginning of the story and how it immediately hooks you with the whole Bruce Wayne being on for the murder of his parents. Uh, the Catwoman story, um, I was not so much about. Uh, Riddler one I enjoyed, but uh, again, with big books like this, it's very, very hard to stay hooked because you're getting a different creative team every uh, so often pages, and it's another style to get used to, and there'll be a really, really good story, then one that just doesn't hook you at all, and it's it's a very uneven experience, and and with all these other annuals going on it's the good stuff in there was good it didn't bring down the whole book but i'm I'm only going to be able to give it three out of five batterings i thought this was decent one thing that josh did bring up was that it's hard to say hook which i agree with because i like the format i like the structure of like a series of short stories the problem is is that you get a good one and then you get a bad one and it's really hard after you read that bad one to want to keep reading it's just kind of like okay you know, I'm done with this. I thought that the artwork in almost all of these stories was pretty good. Um, I like the artwork in the opening story about the Joker. I really liked that we got to read a Calendar Man story. I think, yeah, he is a very gimmicky villain, but I've always felt like he's been extremely underused. So I kind of that was kind of refreshing for me. The best artwork in my eyes was the uh, Matthew Southward artwork uh, that did the Crocodile Hunter story, which I also thought was the best story of the bunch. It was probably the most straightforward, simplest one, but I just thought that that was really kind of funny, this group of uh, this documentary team going into to learn of Killer Croc and uh, end up all dying. Like, you didn't expect just all of them to die and that'd be the end of it. But the artwork was just really dark and greedy, so I thought that that was the highlight story of the issue. The thing about these 80-page giants is that they're not, there's something that they're not necessary. I think if you want to read, like, a decent collection of short stories they're nice so i'll give this three out of five batterings yeah this was hit and miss for me the majority of the stories were either really good or decent i thought i thought the joker one was decent and i thought the riddler one was decent but i really liked the uh both the scarecrow one and the calendar man one i think the calendar man one was my favorite i thought it was a really w- well done story i thought the story titled two-face which two-face isn't even there i thought that was that was a waste of time the last story i thought was meh overall i think this was decent uh very middle of the road i liked it better than i liked the last year's 80 page giants and um i think it's right on the right approach but uh, in terms of its actual content it was good but not great so i'll give this three out of five better ranks all right, and on the uh, website, uh, Eric gave the Batman 80-page giant three and a half out of five batterings, which is going to give Batman the 80-page giant a total of three out of five batterings. Now, let's have a look at you. Hubo. You could have been my successor, detective. Instead, you will suffer the fate of all mortal flesh. Batman Orphans number one of two, written by Eddie Berganza with artwork by Carlo Barberi. This is part one, Army of the Night. Uh, and there are two parts in this story. To set this up, this is like an untold tale. This is kind of like a, I guess, out of continuity thing that appears to be set sometime in the future. So you kind of have fine. to take that for what it is. Uh, the issue opens with the dead body of Robin being found. However, the next day we see Tim Drake out and about, and apparently a Robin impersonator was killed. We cut to the Gotham alleys where a group of thugs are mugging an older woman when this kid with a baseball bat 
Wombat comes jumping in and quickly gets the purse back, but the woman is so frightened that she runs off leaving the purse. Suddenly, Batman appears and asks this kid to come with him. He could use someone like him. We cut to Nightwing. Yes, Dick Grayson is Nightwing in this story, and... Tim Drake Robin at the morgue where they are studying the body of the dead Robin. We learn the kid's name was Chris Ward and was a skilled gymnast who ran off with his brother. We then cut back to Batman with this kid as he takes him into the Bat Grotto where we see about a <laughs> dozen kids swinging and standing around in this massive training grounds which is somewhere down in the sewers and it's kind of like the uh, Batman Academy um, I suppose you could call it. And we see this kid that he brings down being tested by several members of this miniature army, I guess, of Batmans. Um, and the kid is able to fight off several of them until this kid named Lance comes in and gives him the upper hand, and then Batman tells him to knock it off. And then we see Lance put on the Robin costume, and that's the end of part one. Part two, titled Red Alert. The story opens with the sirens, a bunch of sirens going off in, in the Bat Grotto, and each member of Batman's orphans are suiting up as duty calls. They are met by Batman, who goes through the members critiquing their appearance. We then cut to Nightwing and Robin in the Batcave investigating these min- missing children in the murder of this Robin impersonator. Apparently, Bruce is keeping Dick and Tim in the dark about his uh, young sidekicks, and Bruce then suddenly walks into the Batcave, asks Tim or Dick if they want to go with him to this movie premiere that he has to go to. They both decline. We then cut to the Penguin, who is meeting with this associate of LexCorp, and uh, he wants to get the League, Assassin- the League of Assassins involved to retrieve some kind of hardware that he wants. Then we cut to the big movie premiere of Oliver Twist, put on by the Werner Brothers, where we see Bruce Wayne and his childlike sidekicks settling in at the theater. We then cut to Tim and Dick, who are still investigating these missing children in the death of Robin, and we see several panels of these kids working in action. And then we see Dick and Tim undergoing a series of hallucinations where the issue ends with Tim seeing the death of Bruce's parents. That's to be continued. Okay, Batman Orphans. Wow. This was written by Eddie Berganza, who's normally an editor, not a writer. I don't know if he did writing before he was an editor, but that's what he that's what he's been doing for a while. He's been editing the uh, big events that have been going on in the DC Universe as well as the Green Lantern stuff. I have a couple problems. One, I'm extremely lost because I'm not really understanding what's going on here. One, Batman has a bunch of orphans living in the sewers, and he's sanctioning it. That, to me, doesn't make any sense. The other thing that really doesn't make any sense is all of the kids that are down in the sewer that Batman's hiding from everybody are currently missing children. Now, I know Batman had, you know, takes a takes a liking to, you know, teenage sidekicks, but this might be taken a little bit overboard. The art was more of a Japanese anime style, more of a Jackie Chan Adventures cartoon style, I should <laughs> really say. Didn't really enjoy it. Really found it hard to understand why everybody looked like they were Asian, even though it's in Gotham City. Now, I don't really have anything good to say about this book at all. One out of five batterings. Well, real quick, you guys know that this, like, like the whole Dead Robin thing was something from Gotham Central, right? Yeah. Okay. Except for, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. First of all, Batman. Batman. <laughs> this, they should have called this Robin Incorporated or something. You know, that way they could have at least gotten better sales for tying in the Batman Incorporated. Because that's what it's like. It's like, you know, the whole nation of Batman, well, 
for every nation that has a Batman, they're going to have a Robin in their sewers. And, th- and and there's one of my other problems. Batman, Bruce Wayne, a guy with unlimited funds, unlimited money, these orphans, these poor orphans, he's making them live in the sewers. Dude, you, you can probably buy a, buy a condo, like, or an abandoned warehouse or something, you know, and make it all nice for the kids. But no, keep them in the sewers. This is... There's some negligence going on here that's to the level of Frank Miller, Batman. Maybe there's something going on here that we don't know about yet. There'll be some revelation that Batman's doing this, you know, for a certain reason, or these kids are all robots. You, who knows? But this is <laughs> this is weird. Uh, the art did take some getting used to but one thing that did come out well in the art is uh batman the way batman was drawn especially when he was in the shadows there's this one panel where uh his eyes are glowing and you see his teeth and he says do you really believe in me i thought that was kind of cool but otherwise this uh who the heck knows Uh, i'm gonna give it one out of five bat ranks Dustin mentioned Eddie Braganza, who is the uh, executive editor at DC. So my thinking is Eddie Braganza comes to the Batman offices and says, hey, I got this Batman story I want published. And because he's Eddie Braganza and they can't say no to him, they say, okay, this is the worst comic I've ever read, I think. This, I mean, seriously, this makes no sense. I think the artwork is interesting. It reminds me a lot of um, Humberto Ramos, who used to do a lot of stuff at Marvel. Oh, Um, he's back now. Yeah, is he doing some amazing Spider-Man, I think? Yes, he um, is. Read his latest issue this, so to see him draw a woman taking a bath in milk. <laughs> I will be sure to do that. Um, it's a bit over-stylized, and I think the character designs are like a little too cartoony. But when comparing this artwork to the store, I mean, this thing is way superior. I mean, this artwork, I mean, the dialogue is so atrocious. And um, the, the beginning narration talking about angels crying and that's what makes rain <laughs> it's like it's so bad that whatever i was drinking when i was reading this was spewed <laughs> because I, I couldn't i was like this is being serious right now i mean it is hysterically bad and then the big thing that he did was uh Abraganza is like trying to be quentin tarantino or something here i mean he's like he's pulling monologues right out of pulp fiction it's like somebody starts spe- give speaking ezekiel 25 why where is this coming from? Why is he saying this? And then there's this whole bit about you need to lay off the Royales with cheese. Then there's another line about Shaft in the bad mother effer wallet. It, it, is, it is pathetic. This is pathetic. It's like all these pop culture references that have no business being anywhere near. I mean, if I was Abraganza and I wrote this, I would be embarrassed. I mean, this is awful. Like, uh, the story that they're telling is not the least bit interesting. I don't know what is going on. The ending is, like, the most mind-boggling thing. I'm like, what? 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 The whole I'm gonna be Quentin Tarantino thing was, like, that was just stupid. Like, it, I guess he didn't know what he was gonna do, so he's, he starts borrowing from other people. Josh has deemed Adam Beechin's work a toilet paper. I deem this as 2010's new roll of toilet paper. This is... The worst book of 2010, 2009, 2008 of the decade. Uh, zero out of five. Whoa, bad. of the Did decade. Did you not read The Winding Guy? It's not as bad as that. I mean, at least <laughs> there are moments that you can chuckle at something in this. This is just like, okay. this is horrible. I gotta say, uh, when I first started reading this book, I was very, very intrigued because they were picking up a storyline way back when in Gotham Central, the Dead Robin thing, and this is obviously taking taking part in the past where you have Bruce, Tim, and Dick in their Batman, Nightwing, and Robin roles. So I was really, really interested. Um, I liked the art. I liked this kind of really wacky 
Humberto Ramos-esque, over-the-top manga style. And I thought the coloring complements it very, very well. Especially with the, the first splash page of Batman where his eyes are glowing. And it doesn't even look like he has a mouth. I thought that was awesome. Um, so I think the art's actually pretty good all around. I kind of dig it. And I will say that as pathetically awful as Batman's dialogue is in this thing, it is different when you see him in the presence of Nightwing and Robin. It's almost like a different person. And so hypothetically, maybe there's it'll be revealed that, oh, there's another guy trying to be Batman and like, you know, doing this for the kids. Because like, I, I want to I throw the story a bone and assume that the, the Batman that's talking to the orphans is not the actual Batman. I really think that's a, pos- that's a possibility. Because otherwise, this thing would be horrible. And it, and, it, and it wouldn't even jive well with like the characterization they have in this own continuity. For the rest of the story, these orphans... There's a kid with glasses and a bowl cut, these kids in masks and stuff. It's very juvenile, like... Like oh these orphans now they're gonna fight crime. I, it wasn't it, it was it was kind of it was really bad. I didn't I didn't dislike it as nearly as much like worse than the whining guy are you freaking kid. But um it wasn't great and it was actually very confusing especially toward the end. But uh, overall I'll give this about two out of five veterans. All right so Batman Orphans number one was also reviewed on the website by Melinda and she gave it three and a half out of five veterans. All right so that's gonna give Batman Orphans number one one and a half out of five bad ranks. So that is all our comic reviews. Let's start over Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. there and welcome back to bat books for beginners i'm nick and today i'm looking at a new character as we welcome her into the bbfb halls and she's called the huntress or helena bertinelli i'm going to be looking at um, a few issues from her first series called the huntress which was published in 1989 those are going to be issues number one number 18 and number 19 this is her first introduction in issue one and then her first meeting with Batman in 18 and 19. And these issues are written by Joey Cavalieri who's also worked on The Flash and World's Finest series and the art's provided by Joe Statton who's been involved with Green Lantern in the past. So we now have a new addition to the Batman family. How will Huntress get on in her debut? And her first meeting with Bruce, is it going to go well? Or is it going to go not quite so well? Let's find out. Helena Bertinelli is the Huntress. Swooping down into a dark alley, she saves a young woman from being mugged. The incident causes Helena to reflect upon her own past. We find out that Helena grew up in a mob family. As a child, she was kidnapped by a rival mobster and held for a short period of time. She was returned to her family unharmed, but the kidnapping sent a strong message to Guido Bertinelli, her father. From that day forward, a bodyguard accompanied Helena wherever she went. Years later, a masked assassin known as Omerta, the silencer, raided the Bertinelli home. He opened fire on them during a dinner party, killing everyone except for Helena. Helena kept in close contact with her old bodyguard, who taught her how to defend herself both with martial arts as well as firearms. Ultimately, Helena took on the masked guise of the Huntress. 
Later on, we see that Batman and Huntress are clashing when gangs under Helena's watch unite into one Ultra Gang. Helena is happy there is no conflict anymore between these gangs, but Batman is more concerned by the Ultra Gang's leader, known as Rage. And after a bomb is set off killing members of this Ultra Gang, Batman and Helena do some deducing and track down the young boy who planted the bomb. Upon finding him, Batman and Huntress differ again on what to do with this boy, who has tried to reignite a gang war due to his parents' murder. After much consideration, the two work together to take down the ultra-gang leader, Rage, and return peace to Helena's neighbourhood. Clearly Huntress and Batman have the same mission and goals, but they go about their methods differently in achieving those goals. Get behind me, Helena. It'll be alright. Your father hoped to protect you by hiding you in a closet. You saw it all, Helen. Stephen Mandragora killed your parents while you watched. Helplessly. Isn't that what happened? On the front cover of this book, there's a little tagline that says, DC Comics aren't just for kids. This was some sort of uh, new promotion that DC were following at the time in the late 80s. And from the first panel of issue one, you can tell this is a new tone, a darker tone, a more intense tone the DC want to follow with this character. The moments with the woman being beaten in the alley seem fairly intense for that time. But I feel that gets lost by the the final two issues that I reviewed, which is a shame because I think, just from these small couple of issues, Huntress is clearly someone who needs that darker tone and it works well with her. Um, When she's done in a light fashion, not quite so impressive. I did like the look of the series from these three issues, um, and I think I'm going to go back and revisit some of the other issues of the series. It seemed like a really good one. I'd like to learn more about Helena and her past and how she became the Huntress, and I'm looking forward to delving back into it. It's a shame that that series didn't last too long, only 19 issues. I'm surprised as a character that Helena cares so much for her father since he was a mob boss. And considering the morales that she has, why does she care for a man who was clearly made out to be evil? I understand it's her father, but he seems to go against a lot of what she believed in. Again, I haven't read the entire series, so maybe there's something more there for me to to learn. But um, that was something as a character I was intrigued about and maybe uh, didn't quite understand. I thought that her uh, origin story echoed Bruce Wayne slightly, but in a reverse fashion, as her parents are not quite so good as the Waynes. It's the other way around. They're the criminals, and they get killed, as opposed to Bruce's parents. But I think that Huntress is quite similar to Batman in many ways, but maybe even too similar that they can work together. They've both got a standoffish attitude, and... I don't think they work too well together, but not that that's a problem. I just think that's quite an interesting dynamic they have as a pair. Um, I didn't think this was a bad story, but I'm intrigued to learn more about where she came from. Uh, Did she ever track down this Omerta killer that uh, killed her parents? And unfortunately, this series was too large at 19 issues to review the whole thing in full, so I wasn't able to go in and and read all the issues, but... um, I definitely want to go back and have a look at them. I got a little bit bored towards these final two issues with the gang war, and I think I might have preferred it if Batman hadn't made an appearance in those issues. I think he almost overshadowed 
Helena in her own series, and I wanted to learn more about Helena, less about Bruce and his morals. I know all about that. I wanted to learn about this new character. So that was a bit of a disappointment. The R is generally good stuff. The Huntress looks very impressive, but I think some of the heads of uh, people are a bit blocky in parts, and it's certainly not perfect, so I'd say the art's okay. So all in all, fairly intriguing story. Um, Really liked the first issue. Didn't like the ending too well of the last two issues, so I'm going to give it a total of three out of five Batarangs for those three issues in total. So that was my fairly uh, brief review of the Huntress series. As you can imagine, it's a fairly busy time for us all at the Batman universe, so I thought I'd get in and out pretty quick with this BBFB. So as we've had a new Bat family member enter the fray, we're going to return to an older member of the Batman family, Barbara Gordon. And after we last saw her in the tragic events of The Killing Joke, we revisit Babs and see how the next stage in her life is shaping up. So all that to come in Oracle Year One, which you can find in the series The Batman Chronicles, issue number five, if you're keeping up with me. So look forward to revisiting Barbara Gordon next time. I've been Nick, and now I'll send you back to Dustin and the guys. See ya. I've got special arrows too. The pointy kind that'll go right through you. Put her down now. All right, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Uh, as far as what we are going to be covering next time on the podcast, we are going to be covering Batman number 705, Batman and Robin number 18, unfortunately, Batman Orphans number 2, Birds of Prey number 7, oh. Azrael number 15, Batman Annual number 28, Batman Incorporated number 2, Batman Streets of Gotham number 18. And Superman Batman number 79. Alright, so that's everything for this episode. We're still looking for co-hosts, so if you're interested, make sure you're checking out the blog and sending us an email letting us know you're involved. If you send us an email, we'll just give you a link to tell you exactly what you need to do. That's the best way to do it, so send us an email podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. If you're interested, also if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us, we're always open to uh, answering questions through email and uh, taking some uh, listener comments. But uh, the best way to do that is by joining the forums and leaving your questions comments and concerns on the thread for the episode when it posts on top of that you can follow us on facebook twitter and youtube you can check out all the daily news on the website and of course you can leave us a review on itunes that's always greatly appreciated the uh, holidays are right around the corner we will have an episode posting uh new year's eve so take a look for that that'll be the next episode we'll have but this is the next last episode we have before christmas so merry christmas from all of us to you and uh, if you don't celebrate christmas happy holidays we will be taking a uh, nice little week off which really isn't a week off because we never really take a week off uh, we'll have a couple extra it's days. true despite the fact that christmas is on a saturday it really doesn't give us any extra time than we already have so, check out the site, check out the editorial specifically. They're uh, jumping with all kinds of reviews for the books more quickly than we will be giving you on the comic cast, obviously. So, with all that, happy holidays, and you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Feliz Navidad. Goodbye. Happy Kwanzaa.
what's the status of the Batman creature of the night? Okay, hey, Donovan. Yeah. If you're gonna bang the of your computer, mute your mic. I'm tapping it. No, well, no, it comes off like your your bang. That's how it sounds every time. It sounds like. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm muting my mic right now. It's Christmas carolers. Okay, I'm... this is a clean podcast. No f bombs. I'm getting it off of here. Thank My God. head is about to explode. Exactly. Just, just do it while she's right. sleeping. I'm never working with this guy happen. ever again on a podcast. <laughs> After that, <All> right. Right. <laughs> you sick? <laughs> get away from me! Hey, well, you're 11 years old, okay? You know, because because. Fine, 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 I, gotta I gotta go. go. I gotta go.